to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 805 for the week of Monday, April 11th, 2016. I am Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer, how's it going? Welcome back. We missed you around in these parts. Hope you're doing well. Thanks. It's good to be back. And welcome as well, Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftlass. I second what Gene said and also got to say, got a little bit of a Neef hangover, which is the nicest kind of hangover to have other than a launch hangover, which I assume you might have still. <laughs> I might, yeah. Mark Ratterman and Kat Robinson are off tonight and uh, it's just going to be the three of us. So let's jump right into it. And we are going to start off with the most recent of news, which Houston, we no longer have a problem, and that is with the Kepler spacecraft, which, if you know, the Kepler spacecraft has been used to discover some distant world beyond our own that might possibly harbor life, or just our other planetary bodies out there that we've been exploring and learning a little bit more about. Well, a few days ago, before this recording, which is recorded on the 11th, the spacecraft went into emergency mode. And that, I believe, happened on Thursday, which is the lowest operational mode while they try and figure out what happened. Well, as of today's recording on Monday, the spacecraft is back and stable, and they are going to be performing tests on it. And hopefully, it'll be back up and doing science again in a few weeks. But that was quite a scare. Yep. Yeah, it was. Sorry, but picture this. Imagine having to go ahead and do some real serious computer work and your computer is about 75 million miles away. That's what the Kepler team had to encounter on this thing, but they, gosh darn it, they did they did the job and they did it rather well. In fact, I'm looking at the NASA website right now and to quote the folks over at NASA, it was the quick response and determination of the engineers throughout the weekend that led to the recovery. We are deeply appreciative of their efforts and for the outpouring of support from the missions fans and followers from around the world. We also recognize the tremendous support from NASA's Deep Space Network, managed by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, and to NASA's other missions that surrendered their scheduled telemetry links in order to provide us with the resources needed to protect the Kepler spacecraft. And this is from Charlie Sobeck, who is the uh, mission manager for Kepler. So. The time didn't go, you know, unappreciated. A lot of people uh, had to go ahead, take some pause to make sure Kepler survived all this. But gosh darn it, NASA pulled another rabbit out of their hat. So congratulations to everybody. Exactly. A job well done by all the team members and mission managers. And hey, we got science back. And <laughs> this is the Kepler mission, which has already basically, you know, done its main part of the mission and had its little snafus but it's getting ready for k2 the second part of its campaign which i believe is called campaign nine 
uh, or something along those lines, to continue searching for other planetary bodies outside of our own solar system. It's really, it's such a relief because seeing the news that it was down was so scary. I mean, it it is one of those NASA missions that we love to point out. It has lasted way beyond its original mission, and it's found, what, evidence for like 5,000 planets, and a 1,000 of them have been confirmed at this point, I believe are the numbers. I mean, this is one of the coolest things going on. And so finding out today, it, I was terrified we were going to have to talk about tonight that it was non-responsive. And so for it to break today was just, how do you spell relief? <laughs> K-E-P-L-E-R. Yes, indeed. But yes. Uh, J-P-L. <laughs> that too. <laughs> but yeah, to that, uh, up until it was doing its science, its original mission until 2012 when it lost one of its control wheels. And then... In that time, though, it detected, I believe it was nearly 5,000 exoplanets, more than 1,000 of which have now officially been confirmed. So, props to the Kepler team, and let's keep getting more science. And hey, I had my numbers right. <laughs> exactly, there you go. All right, so, we are going to move from one very successful mission on to another, and that is the SpaceX CRS-8 mission. CRS-8 was SpaceX's eighth resupply mission to the International Space Station, their first in almost a year, which, if you recall, CRS-7, well, we like to not recall CRS-7 every if we don't have to, which back in June of 2015 had a launch anomaly about two minutes into the flight, just before first aid separation, where a strut holding a fuel tank came loose and the vehicle broke apart, losing all of the cargo on board and the rocket itself. So, this was their attempt again. They had flown their Falcon 9 rocket a few times, but this was Dragon's return to flight, and boy, she was breathing some fire, and it went perfectly. How would I know that? Well, I wasn't just watching on NASA TV. I was at the NASA Causeway for the launch, which happened this past Friday, April 8, 2016, launching at 4.43 p.m. Eastern Time into the gorgeously clear Florida sky, and... Oh, man, that was a beautiful launch. And the first time I had seen the Falcon 9 1.2, or as it's now called, the Falcon 9 FT full thrust. Did you guys get to see any of the launch from where you were? Well, not not visually, but we, I was watching on NASA television and live posting the launch on Twitter. But when the real big deal for this one, Sawyer, was twofold. One was to get the uh, beam module up there, which is Bigelow's Expandable Activity Module, or BEAM, which I believe is going to be docked to, eventually docked to the uh, Tranquility Node on the ISS. This is a test article for Bigelow Aerospace to see if these expandable modules will actually work out. It's a small container compared to the larger modules that Bigelow wants to loft later on, and we'll get to that later. This is going to be, it's just simply a test article to see how this thing's going to basically expand and how it's going to deal with the space environment on board the International Space Station. So this is a, a really good test to make sure that BEAM works, that it will go ahead and perform as advertised. I believe there's several sensors on board that are going to monitor temperature and any radiation changes, as well as resistance to one of our favorite topics, orbital debris impacts. 
during the time on board, there will be, I believe the crew is going to be entering beam. And so if I remember exactly on this, they're going to be entering the beam module that maybe four or five times during its lifetime on the ISS. The whole idea, too, is just to test a concept to make sure that the module will perform as advertised. And this is something that's being carried up in the trunk of Dragon right now and is sitting in there just waiting for Canadorum 2 to go ahead and grab it out of the trunk and install it on the Tranquility Node. One of the other things, too, I might add that this is a first for, and I almost want to say cue the odd couple music here, both Dragon and Cygnus are on board ISS now at the same time. This is the first time that both commercial crew participants are on board the ISS right now. So it's kind of interesting. It's sort of a first for the program, and it's something that actually NASA is very, very proud of. And they're hoping it's not going to be the last time either that uh, all of the commercial cargo participants will be on board the International Space Station. So, uh, again, it's a signal that this is really, really a busy place and where, where you have both the Russian progress and the, now the two uh, commercial providers on board. And uh, I believe the Sawyer, if you can check me, HTV is still there, correct? Mm, no idea. Okay, I, I believe it still is. So Japan's represented, the Russians are represented, and of course our two commercial partners are represented. So it's a little bit of history too, this flight. But yeah, I mean, congratulations to SpaceX. They did a really grand job of getting this bird off. This was Dragon's return to flight, and Dragon is now safely on board the ISS and is now part of the International Space Station. But this was also Sawyer, if I recall a test of concept for something else that's really, really critical to SpaceX's business plan, and that's reusability. And something happened during that launch that changed the picture of the reusability quotient, correct? Yes. Before we get to that, I do just want to add on to what you were saying, though, with Beam. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. But Beam is scheduled to be attached to the ISS, I believe, on tax day, they said. April 18th April in the 15th. United States. Uh, okay. So the 15th or 18th? That was the 18th. Was... Usually it's the 15th, but because that's a Friday, it's going to be on the 18th. That's what I thought, yeah. Yep. yep. Okay. So they're going to be installing that on tax day, I believe. April 18th was what they said in the press conference. And first entry they're expecting, I believe, in May, the 24th or 25th, is what they said after a few weeks of checkouts. Uh, it was either April or May. I think we'll go with May. Sorry. Wandering mind tonight. Anyway. But yeah, so that is going to be coming up very soon, and we'll see how that experiment works. The other experiment that they did continue to try is their landing of the first stage. Now, they've proved before that they can land back at landing zone one, which is a launch pad at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. That's been modified for them to land their first stage of the Falcon. The one thing they haven't been as successful with is landing on the ASDS, the Autonomous Spaceport Drone Ship. Basically a barge floating out in the ocean, although as Elon pointed out, it can no longer be called a barge because it now has engines on it. But ignoring that part, the first stage landed successfully on the drone ship aptly named, of course I still love you, out in the Atlantic Ocean just a few hundred miles from where it took off. Finally. Aptly named? <laughs> Well, the last few times that it's met up with it, it's kind of poked a hole through it. Yeah, true. You're, 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 that, that's, that's true. Copy and in that, fact, copy Elon, that. in the press conference later, 
had the best line when he <laughs> said in the press conference, quote, the rocket landed instead of putting a hole in the barge. So, you know, of course it still loves it, even after all those dings and dents and explosions. Yeah, especially the explosions. This was a huge deal. This is the first step for SpaceX in proving its business model. They are trying to say that reusability is really, really the future of spaceflight. And the more you could go ahead and reuse it, the more and more you're going to go ahead and keep costs down. So this is a huge deal for SpaceX. And hopefully they're going to go ahead and launch that booster. I mean, Elon Musk said during the press conference, Sawyer, if I recall, they said somewhere around late May, I think, that they wanted to go ahead and try to fly that thing again. I don't know if that turnaround time is going to be that fast. I think they may want to put it through a couple of more drawing boards just to make sure because, again, this is the first one. But he, I think, initially said during the press conference late May that they want to try to see if they can reuse this thing. He had said May and then switched it to a safer estimate of June. But nonetheless, we're talking about two months they plan to test fire the engine about 10 times, and then he isn't sure whether it's going to be a paying customer yet or not, but they will refly it again. And he's hoping, he was saying, to get it down instead of months to weeks. And apparently these stages, once they get back into the routine of it, and it's a lot more normal, I guess, they want to do these stages used for about 10 to 20 launches each just with the quick turnaround. If they're refurbished, they're planning for a hundred for each stage. Huh. This may just be me being a bit of a naysayer, but doesn't that sound familiar? Rated for a hundred flights of something that didn't e do a hundred? <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, yeah, when, when he said that, I was thinking the same thing. My, my mind immediately went back to STS, but yes. I thought, okay, you know, but STS never really got that chance to go ahead and prove that those birds could fly a hundred times. And the jury was still out on that anyhow, whether whether or not those birds could probably take a hundred flights or not. I mean, some people say, yeah, absolutely. Some people are like, oh, I don't know. They were a little, little bit long in the tooth last time I saw them. So who knows? And the world will never know now because they're all in museums. Right. But nonetheless, just very ambitious for him to come out and straight out say to everyone, hey, we're planning 10, 20, up to 100 times to relaunch these boosters and turn them around within a few weeks, which admittedly they are trying to up their launch schedule. I do have to add, though, that it does help to improve your launch schedule when you finally launch on the first try on the scheduled moment, because in case you didn't know, for these resupply missions from SpaceX, they have a one second or what we'll call an instantaneous launch window. If they do not go at that second, the launch does not go that day. And this yeah, one, they actually went on the first try. And I believe I was talking with somebody about the numbers. I believe, and someone will probably correct me, that they are now 3 for 24 on launching on their first try. The other thing, too, sir, I believe, is that they have a rather ambitious schedule for this year. I think they had 18 launches manifested for this year. And I don't think they're on track to complete those 18. I believe even uh, Hans Kronigsman basically said the same thing. We've got to step it up a little bit in order to make that launch schedule. But I don't see how they're going to go ahead and, and make 18. I will probably say 10 would be much more optimistic at this point. But I just don't see them making 18 by the end of the year. Me neither. But hey, the refurbishing helps. And the cool thing was afterwards at the post-launch press conference, 
Nobody expected Elon Musk to be there. I was sitting with another media member, Jason Ryan of our partner company, Spaceflight Insider. And we were just chatting up and he goes, oh, look who's here. And I can't see, there's somebody blocking my way. They move over and there's Elon Musk just sitting there. And all of us are just looking around going, wait, that's Elon Musk in the press briefing room here in Florida. What's he not doing out in Hawthorne, California? But sure enough, there he was. And within a matter of about three minutes, the room went from only about two rows of seats being filled to standing room only. But that was just a bit of a shocker that here he is. And you could kind of tell the people up there, especially George Diller, the NASA public affairs officer, you could tell he was a little surprised at the length of uh, Elon Musk's answers. He definitely dove into each answer in a lot of depth, sometimes a little too scientific, I think, for even a media audience, but he answered just about anything and everything, including, oddly enough, my question, which uh, I'll admit I did geek out a little bit. But I bring this up because we're talking about it landing on the drone ship. So what they do is they then weld the legs onto the barge to help bring it back. And apparently, it gets brought back vertical, standing up, uh, and then I asked him, now what? And this was his response. We're, we're a little bit like the dog that caught the bus, you know. Um, so look, what do we do now? Um, uh, but uh, it, it, the, the plan is to bring it into port, um, then take a, there's, there's a load head fixture that we can put on the top of the, the rocket, uh, kind of where the, the stage separation mechanism attaches, uh, and then we, we can pick it up with the crane and then put it onto land. Um, and then we've got a, oh, we actually have like a, like a, like a, a stand that we put it on. And then uh, the stand attaches the, the launch hold downs. And then we can fold the legs up. Um, then the crane rotates it horizontal for transport and bring, should bring it to, back to um, probably 39A. Um, and then we're going to do some, do, do those, like those 10 test firings. And uh, if that all goes well, then uh, we think we'll be uh, comfortable with, with an orbital flight. Just to let you know, when we were, we were over at the uh, Northeast Astronomy Forum uh, with a bunch of Talking Space listeners and the infamous Neef Posse, thanks guys, we miss you. That response from Elon Musk was really, really the talk of the table, if you will. Just that one comment were a little bit like the dog that caught the bus. <laughs> That was an interesting analogy. But again, this is critical to their reusability, the whole idea of reusability. This is critical to their entire business model. And I do wish them well with this one. I mean, if they can go ahead and try to lower launch costs this way and really think that this is the model to go with, hey, we'll see what happens. Obviously, bringing down the cost is the most important thing. But it's also just really exciting because rather than having more you know, rusting things in the ocean <laughs> or anything like that. It's, I really admire the drive for reusability, even if it's primarily for profits. It's a good idea on quite a few levels, especially as launches become more common. Exactly. Now, before we switch topics, there are three very quick things I want to mention. One, this is one you will never hear about anywhere else. In fact, these next few topics. And this is about what actually goes on out at the press site or at the launch viewing area for the press. And you'll see why I'm talking about these in just a second. 
The first thing I do want to talk about is when you're out there at the launch site, it's usually divided up, and it's not because there's clicks and it's the cool kids and the non-cool kids, you know, the TV guys are the cool kids, the radio ones aren't. It's usually that the TV people are over on one side doing their live broadcasts or talking or whatever they do, and then on the other side are the photographers or the people who aren't really talking, they're pretty much doing their shutters. We at Talking Space usually sit over on that side because it's the most quiet, so that way we can record the launch audio and play it back for you. However, that was not the case at this launch. Though I do point out there was one foreign media member who positioned himself directly in front of the photographers and then continued to be smack dab in the middle of our shots and continue speaking the entire time during launch, which if you're on the far side where it's a lot harder to pick up on a microphone, that's totally fine, and that's normally what we do. Occasionally, if you listen to any of our launch audio, you'll hear the NASA TV sound in the background. You'll hear shutters clicking, cheering, that kind of stuff. That's expected, and I think that adds a little bit of atmosphere to the audio. When you're that close and that's all you can hear, it can be a little frustrating. So I do still want to play for you the launch audio that I recorded of the CRS-8 launch from about three miles away. Because if you listen to it, you can just feel the power of the nine engines, and you really can feel that power just from listening to it, in my opinion. So if you're in the car, crank it up to the high volume. If you have earbuds in, make sure you've got the bass turned all the way up, and try and ignore the person continually speaking throughout the whole thing, but just enjoy the feeling of a Falcon 9 launch, and uh, we'll talk about it after.
Hey, so that's just proof positive. Gang, if you ever have the opportunity, and I sincerely mean this, if you ever have the opportunity to go see a launch, whether it's from the Kennedy Space Center or soon to be starting up over here in the Mid-Atlantic region over at uh, the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport out of Wallops Island, go ahead and do it. I urge you, please. It is literally a life-changing experience, especially once we go ahead and start piloted launches again out of here in the United States. Please, I would urge you to go ahead and and take the time and go see one of these because it, it is one of the most just gut wrenching, just emotional experiences. So so please, by all means, do it. And if this isn't proof of that, I don't know what is. Exactly. And just from being there, you know, I've seen a few different kinds of launches. I've seen shuttle. I've seen Delta Four Heavy, but for not having any solid rocket boosters, this one had some oomph to it you could actually feel it not just hear it and just the rawness i think of that audio the i hope that comes through of just that power of the nine engines just how overwhelming that was especially for a rocket that i wasn't expecting to be that powerful because when you look at it it doesn't look all that terribly big although when it launched it did seem a little taller than the last time but nonetheless it's just absolutely gorgeous the second thing i do want to bring up about the press site is when we were there there was a SpaceX representative there with us as well. After the launch had occurred, we were all, you know, packing up our gear, getting ready to go back to the bus. We had heard over the speaker, Falcon on the barge or something along those lines. And all of us were just looking at each other going, wait, does that mean what we think it means? And sure enough, there's one little group of people that started hooting and hollering. And then the SpaceX representative who was holding a phone watching it just started screaming and cheering and jumping up and down. So I rushed over and I said, did it land on the barge? He said, yes. And I immediately pulled out the camera, snapped a picture, and that will be included in the show notes. Just the happiness on his face. It's, it captured the entire moment of all of us at the press site, even though, you know, we're meant to be neutral and that kind of stuff. And if you've listened to the show, you've heard we've been critical of SpaceX in the past, but just that person's reaction summed everybody's reaction up at that press site. You could hear the NASA social people cheering too as they watched. But that face of someone who works for SpaceX seeing what their company accomplished, I think that's the best. Hey Sawyer, I'll be blunt. We were watching this here. My, you know, I was doing the one-armed fist pump over here when that thing pegged the landing. And I'm looking at that photograph right now, Sawyer, and I'll bet you anything that that SpaceX rep is still got that big grin on his face. And you know something? Everybody that worked on that booster deserves to feel that way. They, they did a good job. And I think that's one of the things that is really wonderful about the space industry is obviously there's long days, late nights, a lot of hard work, a lot of effort, a lot of time away from your friends and family. You put your all into it. And I, but I've never seen people in another industry so gloriously happy when things go right and, and what they've been working on comes to fruition. And I think that's one of the reasons I fell in love with watching this industry is that passion, that enthusiasm. And it's really a beautiful thing. And so, you know, congratulations to SpaceX and everybody who worked on this launch in any capacity. And remember, everybody in every position at these space companies is very, very valuable, <laughs> even if they're not the ones that are building the rockets. They all are. And they deserve to just 
be absolutely thrilled. And of course, now they have to get back to work and try and get the rest of these launches off. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing because hopefully they'll be feeling it again and again and again. It's just, it makes it very different from watching almost any other industry. Also, too, Cassie, I might interject that the industry help you know goes ahead and when things go wrong they're not going yeehaw for the other competitor because i, I yeah. still remember too musk after orb three firing out something saying we're watching and our stars are with orbital sciences tonight and i believe uh, orbital atk did the same thing for uh, crs7 when they had the failure so i think there's a feeling too yeah okay fine we're competitors but there's also a feeling of esprit de corps. We don't want to go ahead, and we have a bad day. The whole industry has a bad day, and that, that and that's that's the big difference. Well, it's great because it's like there's competition and there's camaraderie, which is the way it should be, especially when you're doing something this daring. And everybody's success, ultimately, it may not be this way directly from a business perspective, but every bit of success, every bit of failure is definitely, it's felt across the industry because you know, it's still a nascent budding industry. And so there's a lot to learn. And they do learn a lot from each other as well, in both the good times and the bad. And that camaraderie within the realm of competition, it's just a very special thing. Exactly. And one thing I do want to add also is that on the SpaceX patch for CRS-8, they have eight stars on there for their eight missions. And the seventh star is grayed out. The rest are all white, except for the seventh star in honor of CRS-7, which is grayed out. So it's kind of nice to even see SpaceX, you know, acknowledging that they've had some uh, failures in the past, but they continue to move on. What a wonderful image. <laughs> oh, totally. It, it was a brilliant patch. Another thing they have on it, highlighted in blue on the back of the space station, is the beam module, which is built by Bigelow Aerospace. So up there now you've got the big little aerospace module, you've got the Dragon, and then you've got Cygnus, which was last launched by ULA. And I believe there's actually now a tie-in between two of those companies, Bigelow and ULA. Am I right? Oh boy, Sawyer, just before we went on to air tonight, there was some huge, as to invoke the name of a billionaire running for president right now, a huge announcement um, with, with that. Big Oil Aerospace and United Launch Alliance just announced that they are kind of joining forces to launch Bigelow's new expandable modules, the B-330, which will have about, if I'm reading this press release correctly from United Launch Alliance, will have about 330 cubic meters of internal space. If I believe exactly what uh, Robert Bigelow said during the press conference tonight, three of those things kind of strung together equals the entire volume of the International Space Station, or at least the habitable volume of the International Space Station. They had selected United Launch Alliance because, quite frankly, the ULA fairing is large enough to accommodate the B-330 expandable module, whereas the SpaceX Falcon fairing just simply could not do it. This according to uh, Robert Bigelow. This Mark this down on your calendars, gang. This is the first time that two space companies have gotten together to go ahead and say, hey, this is not just the beginning of 
something that NASA's involved in or anything like that. This is a collaboration for the first time of two companies that are trying to strike out on their own without NASA totally and completely in the picture. Now, I believe Bigelow Aerospace is exploring some options for that B-330. I think they want to go ahead and attach it to the International Space Station first and see what it can do there. And I think with the idea that when it comes time to possibly splash ISS, you could simply detach some of these modules and, and replace them with some of the Bigelow modules. I will say that the Bigelow expandable modules are completely autonomous, according to Robert Bigelow, meaning they have their own power, their own environment systems, and so on. And yes, their own amenities on board. But the idea, too, is to try to see if what would be usable from the International Space Station and sort of keep some of that apparatus still flying while private industry is kind of moving into it. If that is not possible, then the idea is to go ahead and use these two expandable modules. I don't want to say inflatable because Bigelow does not like that word, inflatable. They really, really want to try to see if this could be the actual start of industry you know, of a low-Earth orbit space station completely operated privately, meaning that Bigelow would go ahead and hopefully contract out with NASA if it's on the International Space Station. NASA would still be sort of an anchor tenant, if you will. Like Just picture a shopping mall where you have an anchor store like a Target or a Macy's or something like that. The other module would be over there simply for lease on a timesharing basis. If you're a pharmaceutical company and you want to go up there and do research, hey, have at it. If you are some other company and, and you want to send your own scientists to go ahead and do some microgravity crystal growth experiments, go up and have at it. Contract out to Bigelow. They'll give you the space on board and they will do it. You know, And all you have to do is just pay for your ride up there. And I'm sure the way things are going with Boeing, with SpaceX, with other providers, they'll be more than happy to have you hitch a ride on, on board one of their spacecraft. And I'm sure they will be more than happy to go ahead and provide taxi service to any type of private space station that may take hold from this. But the idea, too, is to have a space economy or a low-Earth orbit economy start taking hold. That's a historic moment. The other thing, too, that was talked about during the press conference Somebody brought up any type of STEM stuff. How do you give back? And Robert Bigelow had a very intriguing idea. And he basically said, here's what we're thinking. We'd like to go ahead and set up sort of like an associate astronaut program where you have a youngster that wants to go ahead and learn more about spaceflight and so on. And you kind of groom that individual to a point where he or she is, say, like 20, 21 years old. You have to be 21 years old to fly for contractual reasons and for legal reasons and so on and so forth. The idea would be having this individual go through the system and so on, go through the education system that they would provide, all that, and then have this individual as an associate astronaut fly to a big or low module and perform honest-to-God research. Picture this, 21, 22 years old and having the opportunity to fly in space. This is what we're, we're getting at. I think that's exactly where we need to go because that's the age of grad students and that's when people are young and fresh and 
I, I mean, it's I'm not nothing against older people. I'm going to be 40 soon. <laughs> and obviously, most of our astronauts tend to be more in my age range. But we were talking about this on the last episode about sending grad students to the moon to do research. It's such a wonderful idea. And this could be such a great opportunity and will be so great for our collective future as well. It's wonderful news. Funny you should mention that because I'm going to cross-pollinate a little bit into our Northeast Astronomy Forum discussion here a little bit. Dr. Bernard Cutter, who is with United Launch Alliance, talked about the percolation of this space-based economy. And one of the things they want to do over at United Launch Alliance is leverage that and try to use that and indeed try to find out too what resources there may be on the on the lunar surface that could go ahead and help this economy kind of percolate along. And the idea is using the new upper stage that they want to replace the Centaur with. It's called ASIS. And this upper stage is designed not only to take your payload uphill, but it's also designed to be reusable, meaning you could pull up to a fuel depot, tank it up, and continually use it. I understand, too, that this thing could be outfitted as a landing system of some sort. And I understand, too, that this thing could theoretically be outfitted to carry crew and cargo. So theoretically, what Cutter was saying, you could take this upper stage after it's been retanked and use it as the crux for a crew and cargo system to take you back to the moon. You go ahead, land on the moon, come back up, hook up go back to Earth using this upper stage, get into low Earth orbit, you get out of your spacecraft, rendezvous with, say, an Orion or a one of the other commercial crew vehicles, and take crew back home. The other thing, too, that Tori Bruno was saying at the press conference, this is the start of people going into space because there are jobs there and there's opportunity for a better life there. And this is what collectively I think we've all been kind of talking about for the past couple of years here on Talking Space is that space should be used as an environment to work and to try to see what materials are out there that could help life here back on Earth. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about finally starting a space-based economy. And guess what? NASA is not in this picture. It's nowhere to be found. It's being looked at by two companies at the moment right now. That's United Launch Alliance and Bigelow Aerospace. And to uh, uh, Robert Bigelow's credit, he was first saying, why ULA and why not SpaceX or anybody else? He said, well, we're, we're aware of those guys. He kind of chortled them a little bit. We know about SpaceX. But in their case, again, their fairing was just not able to accommodate the B-330 and the ULA fairing was. And he was asked about the relationship, whether it was just for a limited time only or anything like that, because as you know, the Dragon carried their experiment module up to the International Space Station. And Bigelow said, we take intercompany relationships very, very seriously. So it sounds like they're on the ULA bandwagon to stay at least for a little while. The other thing too, they came up with safety because these are expandables. We haven't really seen how they perform yet. And Bigelow assured everybody that they test like mad. He said, we test to quote him and I'm reading from my tweets here. We test to destruction. 
meaning we tried to see what it takes to destroy one of these things. And he basically said, we're going to continually test up until launch day. We'll still be testing to make sure that these things are performing the way they should be performing. It sounds like they are awfully serious about trying to make a space-based economy. And Cassie, to your point, I believe a lunar option for these things was discussed, and I believe it is being seriously considered at this point. So I don't want to say, Cassie, that we're <laughs> that that we're Nostradamus or anything on this show, but every member on this program has been talking about this, and lo and behold, it is finally happening. So you know, hats off to the United Launch Alliance. It sounds like they've got a good program going. Hats off to Bigelow Aerospace. I'm hoping the, the beam module proves to be efficient. But I'm also hoping NASA goes ahead and and gives the Bigelow module a chance if the beam experiment is successful. Because Robert Bigelow said, we stand to do NASA a huge favor, which means we're really, really trying to prolong the life of the International Space Station and try to see if we can continue to use components of it way past 2024. So have they reached out to NASA? Yes. Is there some sort of agreement yet? Not so much. That's still being discussed. I have a feeling NASA's waiting to see how well BEAM performs before they go ahead and allow it on the International Space Station. And the other thing Bigelow is saying about NASA with reference to this, they said with the BEAM project, they were all over that thing. They wanted to make sure if you're going to go ahead and attach to the International Space Station, they will be all over that B-330. And they will be making sure that it works the way it's supposed to work before it's even allowed on the International Space Station. So if you recall, when we had the commercial crew and commercial cargo vehicles and so on, there was a lot of testing like that, too, to the point where I believe one of the participants, and I want to say this was SpaceX, said that they could probably, I, I think Russia wanted to make sure that before that thing had docked with the ISS, that, that a lot of testing had occurred as well with SpaceX before it came to the ISS. And I believe, too, they demanded the same thing with Cygnus. So, again, NASA is not going to be nonchalant about what they allow to dock to the International Space Station because it is a, a question of safety and security for the crew. And they want to make sure that, no pun intended, anything is airtight and the crew is going to be safe with this thing attached to it. This is huge news for, I think, human spaceflight going forward. Because, again, now space is going to be a place to work. It's going to be a place where job opportunities are going to come about. Tori Bruno was actually asked that question tonight about what jobs did he think were going to open up. And he said flat out he didn't know. And that's the exciting part about all of this. We don't know what kind of jobs are going to open up as a result of all of this. So just grab the popcorn, folks. And for the youngsters listening, this could be your opportunity. So keep going, keep studying, and you too might be finding a career in low Earth orbit or on the lunar surface. Wait a while, guys. It's coming. Because I was at the SpaceX launch and because I now live in Florida, I was no longer able to attend NEEF, which, in case you're unaware, NEEF, we mentioned a little bit earlier in the show, is the Northeast Astronomy Forum held in Rockland County, New York, just outside of New York City, every year. Now, I was down at the SpaceX launch, but apparently SpaceX was also up at NEEF, right? 
Yes, sir. Hans Kroningsman, who I believe, Sawyer, if you can correct me on this since you are at the Cape, is their chief of quality and mission assurance. He was doing yeoman service. He was at the uh, the press site for the launch and was at Elon Musk's side at the press conference. But he was also, that Sunday, apparently he, he flew up here to Suffern, New York, to go ahead and give a presentation about what SpaceX is doing and what they're all about. It was pretty much a general program where he kind of gave uh, a little bit of a footprint. He told everybody about how the vehicles are manufactured. They're all horizontal. Um, how the Dragon itself is manufactured and how 70% of the components that go into this thing are all kind of made in-house. The whole idea is, is to make sure that they don't run into production problems, that you're not being held hostage by a supplier or something like that, that you can still get everything you need. And if you have it in-house, then you know you don't have to worry about a supplier or anything like that. He gave a little bit of an overview of Space Launch Complex 40, basically saying it was one of the old Titan pads, and also gave a quick overview about their plans for uh, Space Launch Complex 39A, which everybody knows was the place where Apollo 11 launched from and also where Shuttle had the majority of their launches. 39A has not been used since the end of the shuttle program, but I understand that's going to change in the not-too-distant future with SpaceX launching both Falcon 9 and soon Falcon Heavy from that facility. Then, of course, he profiled Vandenberg Air Force Base, where also SpaceX has a footprint. But one of the things he brought up was, number one, the fairing, the way it works. And a lot of people know that the fairings usually are used with pyrotechnics. The SpaceX fairing uses pneumatics to separate it rather than, and gas pneumatics rather than pyrotechnics because apparently, A, it's a lot cheaper to do it that way, but B, it's also a lot quicker and a lot faster, according to Koningsman. Uh, he did do a, a side-by-side comparison between Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy, did talk about Dragon a little bit and the Draco and Super Draco engines. This this audience kind of knows a little bit about both. But his big force was reusability. And this comes back home to what we were saying earlier. But one of the things that he wanted to drive home because of the success that they had on Friday was why you want to land on the drone ship rather than on a landing pad like they did before. Sorry, you had some other additional insight into that. Yeah, they talked about it a bit at the uh, press conference down at the Cape as well. They were saying, and I was, uh, there's a great internet video, I'll see if I can find it. Basically, it talked about how a lot of it has to do with its fuel capacity of getting it to an orbit. So, obviously, if it's going to a higher orbit, it's going to need more power. So, it's going to need all that extra fuel. And to go back to the launch pad, as it turns out, costs a lot more fuel. Because when you think about it, basically it's going up, coming to a complete stop, and then having to fire backwards. And then keep in mind, it's also got to slow itself down and keep itself straight. Whereas, basically what you're doing with this kind of launch is it goes up in the air, and then you are basically putting the drone directly underneath where it's going to be. So it doesn't have to stop and fire back. It literally can just go straight down and slow itself down. So as a result, it's cheaper, and it's sometimes the only option, depending on how much fuel is left in the rocket based on its orbit it's going to. 
Thanks. I appreciate that, Sawyer, because, again, that was a little bit of a confusion from people that I talked to as to why they were landing on, on the drone ship, not the landing pad they had used before. Also, the United Launch Alliance was there. Dr. Bernard Cutter was there. And he also, as, as I earlier had indicated, championed this low-Earth orbit economy. But he also talked a little bit about Vulcan and the approach that they're taking there. Rather than going ahead and you know reusing the entire core, they're just going to go ahead and use the engines rather than use the entire have the whole thing come back. Because in their eyes, the fuel needed to go ahead and land something like that, it, it basically takes away from the payload that you want to bring. And again, he was asked about SpaceX, and he said, "Well, they are trying a different approach, and we wish them all the best with their approach. And he was very, very diplomatic about it. But he did describe the way the Vulcan engines were going to be recovered. I believe those engines are going to detach from Vulcan and be captured. You'll have a parasail. They'll be coming down, and a uh, helicopter will capture the engines and bring them back. So we'll see what what approach works and works well. But the good news is that U.S. launch providers are alive and well and doing some great business. And that, I think, was one of the central themes coming out of Northeast Astronomy Forum, believe it or not. Cassie, you had interesting insight about a huge story that we covered concerning the detection of gravity waves. And the folks from LIGO were over there, correct? At least David Schumacher was there, and he was one of the best speakers in a schedule packed with great speakers. What I found most interesting about the LIGO talk, because obviously I've been following this story, so I knew a lot of the stuff he was talking about, but he really put into perspective how incredible the moment of their discovery was, because a lot of years, a lot of manpower went into figuring out how to get not just LIGO going, but then they, well, actually, I'll let him explain how they got from LIGO to ALIGO. Because that alone is very interesting. So, for advanced life, we have better science ideas for the detector. All of these things happened in parallel with building the main observatory. Better technology to realize those ideas. We have the experience of building the LIGO. We have much better systems of engineering and QA. That was really important. Um, we had 15 years of the scientific life of something like 100 of the best instrument scientists on the planet who really usefully dedicated themselves to making this the instrument that would do the trick. And then we had the incredible courage, vision, and patience on the part of the NSF and then also from the taxpayers. Again, thank you very much. I thought it was a really nice touch how he thanked everybody for, you know, providing the funds for this through the NSF. And it's incredible the amount of skill that they had just in building this. I actually... I live with a cabinet maker and they work to some really, really fine tolerances. And the tolerances that they had to have for LIGO were actually numbers that I cannot conceive of. It is easier for me to conceive of all the stars in the universe than the tolerances that it took to make LIGO work. They did an incredible job and we really need to thank those instrument makers, those hundred of the best instrument makers for putting so much time and energy into making the instrument sensitive enough. And then What's really amazing is how the timing worked out with their discovery. I don't know if people realize that it was pretty much the moment that they had enough sensitivity that a signal came in. That's an incredible thing in the scientific world. Usually you're waiting and waiting and waiting. They were still running tests, actually, on 
the instrument. And he actually had a really funny story about how they they really weren't expecting to be doing a science, as Sarcastic Rover would say, at the moment when they found the signal. Yeah, Cassie, I'm looking at the placard that he posted. He basically said 1.3 billion years after these two merged, and he emphasized that at that point in time, multicellular life here on Earth was just starting to form. Yes. And 100 years after Einstein predicted gravitational waves, 50 years after Ray Weiss invented the detectors, 20 years after the NSF, MIT, and Caltech founded LIGO, 10 years after the advanced LIGO got the okay, six months after starting the detector, and two days later, after they started observing, and again, as you pointed out, Cassie, they were just doing engineering tests at the time. Bang, they got it. Yes, and in fact, they lucked out literally by a matter of hours, as he can explain. I have to tell you a little about this. <laughs> the, the instruments were, in fact, still in an engineering run when the signal came in. We had a week of engineering run before our science failed because we were just getting the system going. It's the first engineering run, you know, getting it settled down and so forth and so on. But it was running really smoothly, really beautifully. There were two people who were in our Louisiana site, though, who were doing some characterization of the system. What they were doing, actually, was banging on that tube that you saw <laughs> to find out whether or not dust falling through the beam would make things that look like gravitational waves. <laughs> kind of a vector characterization process. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and they were getting pretty darn tired, and they were using, of all things, an Apple Watch as the source of GPS time that they were writing down in their notebooks so that they go back and look at the data and compare. And this, this Apple Watch lost its synchronization. <laughs> so they said, ah, we've had it. We're going home. And three hours later, oh. <laughs> it was real close to the So anyway, within minutes after the arrival of the signal, we had wakened some people up. We said, get away from the machine. Don't touch it anymore. And then we started to go through the process of looking, you know, is this this familiar kind of, of um, lip glitch or this kind of koi fish glitch or this, you know, this, this kind of defect that we see typically. Was anybody doing any artificial injections of signals, which is something that we do to make sure that the whole system works? In the past, we've even done ones that we haven't told anybody in a group about as a way of testing whether or not people are actually finding things in our data streams. So there were some very hard questions placed to some people to make sure that we knew that we really had it just that very thoroughly. So, yeah, you see, who knew that the misfunction of an Apple Watch would enable one of the greatest scientific discoveries? <laughs> hey, science happens in some weird ways, and that was just a demonstration of how weird th this is going to get. Oh, and it's so weird, too, because the specs that they had to build this to, I knew they had crazy tolerances and it, everything had to be really precise and the vacuum had to be perfect and everything. But they actually, the concrete tubes that they built, that this is inside, it had, they actually had to make sure that they could withstand any gun that a hunter might have, as he said, this being America. And it turns out that somebody actually even drove a truck into it. Yeah, and one of the security folks. I'll have to go ahead and give you that placard, Cassie. So I, I don't know if we have permission to post it from Neath, but I'm going to do it anyway. There is actually a security vehicle 
that yes. is plowed into one of the piping. It's 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 kind of funny. It's amazing, like the things that you just don't even really think about. <laughs> like, um, I guess you know the they wasn't on their maps or their GPS or whatever, and somehow <laughs> they ended up crashing right into LIGO. So obviously, a very very well built machine. <laughs> and the thing that I love so much about LIGO, being a sound person and obsessed with sound waves. We're actually hearing black holes colliding. When they convert this into a sound wave, you can actually hear that collision. And that's just incredible. It's this music from the universe. Everything about LIGO is so interesting. And the most interesting part is that this is really the very beginning of a new field of astronomy and one that's going to be collaborating with visual, radio, astronomy, all these other fields, because it's just a new way to detect things and to say where everybody else should be looking for stuff. And so we only have two of these online right now. Another one's coming in Italy soon. And then they're building one in India. And I believe, was it China, Gene? I believe it was China, but also there's a plan somewhere in the 2030s, alas, to have a orbiting version. That's exactly what I was bringing up. It's known as Lisa and one of the things I hadn't thought about, obviously, I think this is a great idea. Obviously, they would get better signals and they wouldn't have to worry about seismic activity and things like that. Missed signals from things that are on Earth, as well as all, all the constraints of being on Earth. But, hey, it may be expensive to get to space, but vacuum is real cheap up there. <laughs> and this is just sort of the first part of what we're going to be talking about uh, at the Northeast Astronomy Forum. Next time when we meet, we're going to be talking about a whole lot. It was a very, very Pluto-centric Northeast Astronomy Forum this year. That will give you a little bit of a hint and a little bit of a taste as far as who was among the guest speakers. I will say a very, very familiar face was definitely leading up the charge. As I like to say, the happiest face I've ever seen in my life when they found out that New Horizons was actually there and speaking to them. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm going to let this audience guess who that was, but uh, we'll <laughs> save that for next week. Also, another individual from the New Horizons team was there speaking. We're going to go ahead and save that also for next week. Some folks over at the Lowell Observatory, they are coming up, and we'll be talking with, about them. Also, a program that you can participate in, and we'll feature that a little bit, called JunoCam. Very exciting citizen science, just for a little teaser. Yep. Next program, we're going to have a lot coming out of the Northeast Astronomy Forum. So stay tuned. There's a lot more for next time. We had to cut this short because of the magnitude of the news tonight and, of course, the SpaceX first stage landing on Friday. But gosh darn it, we're going to bring the Northeast Astronomy Forum to you. And I can't wait. Again, since I couldn't be there, this is the next best thing to be in there is getting to hear all the speakers and hear all the stories and the fun of Neve Posse. And that will continue next episode. But in the meantime, I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here for this episode. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Sawyer, nice to have you back at the Attila the Hun chair. I was really, really happy to hear your insights from uh, CRSA. Thanks a lot. You got it. I'm glad to be back, and I'm glad I could make it down for the launch and that it did happen to go on that first try. And thank you all for joining us, Cassie Tamini. Well, thank you very much, and I'd also like to wish everybody out there a very happy, I guess by the time you hear this, belated Yuri's Night. 
hope everybody had a lot of fun, whether you were at home or doing stuff with friends or at one of the big celebrations. Yes, and in case you're unaware, Yuri's Night is celebrated every year on April 12th, the anniversary of Yuri Gagarin's first flight into space. Also, conveniently, the anniversary of the first space shuttle launch. Just difference is 1961 versus 1981. Anyway, hopefully you will join us next episode. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.